invite you to take your Bibles and turn with me to the very last book in the Bible, Revelation. If you get to the concordance in the maps, you've gone too far. Last book of the Bible, book of Revelation. We're just going to be looking at the first few verses. And if you're using the red Bibles and the chairs around you, you'll find that on page 1028. Revelation chapter 1, I'm going to be reading verses 1 through 3. I would invite you to listen along as I read to you. The revelation of Jesus Christ, which God gave him to show to his servants the things that must soon take place. He made it known by sending his angel to his servant John, who bore witness to the word of God and to the testimony of Jesus Christ even to all that he saw. Blessed is the one who reads aloud the words of this prophecy, and blessed are those who hear and who keep what is written in it. For the time is near. Let's pray together. Our Heavenly Father, we thank you so much for your word. We thank you for causing it to be written down in such a way that Your people can understand who you are and who we are. We thank you for so preserving it over these many years that we can read it now and know uh, of its authority, of its significance, of its truth. I pray, Father, that you would open our eyes and prepare our hearts for the work of your Holy Spirit to take your word and impress it deeply into us. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, here we are, embarking upon an 11-month study of the book of Revelation. And I'll tell you, as we begin this study, I have both a mixture of excitement and a little bit of fear. And it seems like Revelation uh, causes both of those emotions in us as we think about all that is contained within it. There is a long history in the church of neglect of this book, of misunderstanding of this book, even of misuse of this book. And I would say that usually people fall into two categories or two extremes as they think about the book of Revelation. Uh, One extreme is people just ignore it. Too hard to understand, too fantastical, so just leave it over there by itself. And then the other extreme that we also see is an unhealthy obsession with it. I experienced both of those growing up in the, is thinking about the book of Revelation when I was in the youth group of the PCA church that I grew up in in the late 1970s and early 1980s. Uh, there was a movie series that came out. And it was a movie series that was loosely based on the book of Revelation. And I don't think the series had a full uh, title for the whole series, but the movies were called A Thief in the Night, A Distant Thunder, Image of the Beast, and The Prodigal Planet. If you've seen those movies, and the Wikipedia entry for them says 300 million people have watched those movies, uh, then you know that it was, in many ways, kind of a cheesy Christian movie series with bad music and bad fashion, uh, loosely about uh, Revelation, specifically about the end times. 
And uh, I don't know why our youth pastor decided to expose our youth group to this series. Uh, Perhaps I'll ask him next week at General Assembly when I see him. (laughs) But the result of him exposing us to these movies without really studying the book of Revelation, but simply using the movies as something to watch in youth group, was that it created a lot of fear and trembling and confusion and even obsession by some of us in the youth group uh, about the book of Revelation. And that's what usually happens. We're either full of fear and obsession, and sometimes it causes us to swing from one extreme to the other, either ignoring it and neglecting it, or also being obsessed with it. And I would say, as we embark on this study, we need, if that, if in any way that reflects your own attitude, either ignoring it, neglecting it, or obsessing over it, we need to repent of both of those extremes. Revelation is a very important book in the Bible for Christians to be familiar with. It is meant to be comforting. It's a pastoral book. It is meant to be encouraging. It is meant to fill God's people with hope and with joy and with peace. Some of you know that John Calvin... Uh, decided not to write a commentary on the book of Revelation. I think he was both wise and mistaken in his perspective on the book of Revelation. He said it was one of the only books of the Bible that he didn't feel like he understood well enough to write a, a, a commentary on. Now, there's wisdom in that. There's a sense of humility of approaching the book of Revelation with humility. And so we need to come with humility as we come to understand this book. But I also think that Calvin was mistaken because Revelation is God's word. And it's given to us. It's meant for us to understand and to help us and to encourage us and to strengthen our faith. And so today, as we start our study, what I want us to do is to look at what John begins to tell the people that he was writing to about why it's important to read this letter, read this book, to study it and to understand it. And we're going to look at three things. First of all, it's important because it comes from God and it's for us. And secondly, it's important... Because it's meant to be understood. And then thirdly, it's important because the whole book is about Jesus. Now, before we jump into those uh, things about why it's important, uh, let me just give you a, a few bits of background information. We'll get more as we go along throughout the coming months. But let's just begin with a, a little bit of background information. Who wrote it? Uh, When was it written and to whom? Uh, We know from verses 4 and 9 in chapter 1 that John wrote this. And uh, almost all scholars who uh, believe that this is God's word uh, know that that was John the disciple. One of the twelve disciples. One that was close with Jesus. He's the one that wrote the gospel of John as well as the three epistles. First, second and third John. It was written sometime in the last half of the first century, probably between 69 A.D. and and 96 A.D. So it's the last book written in the New Testament. And we know who it was written to because in verse 1 he says that it was for God's servants. And later in verse 4, more specifically, to the seven churches in Asia. That is the Christians in the area that was called Asia Minor, which today we would refer to as Turkey. This was written to 
everyday Christian folk. This wasn't written simply and and only for seminary professors or spiritual PhDs, as it were. This was written for regular Christian folk, God's servants, God's people and his churches. Now, why did John write it? Well, we read about these Christians in these seven churches, and we know from church history that they were dealing with persecution. They were dealing with troubles. And John was given this revelation to write to them, to encourage them and to spur them on to persevere and to endure in the midst of their persecution and troubles. And he's doing that by telling them good news. God is in control of history and he wins. And it was meant to be an encouragement to the people. What kind of literature is this? Well, first and foremost, it's a letter. It has an introduction, it has a main body, and it has, uh, in essence, a conclusion. It was a letter that was written to these churches. But it's also a kind of genre known as apocalyptic literature. That word apocalyptic comes from the second word in the book, Revelation, the Greek word apocalypsis. And that means that there are symbols and imagery and fantastic pictures about what happens in the last days and at the end times. In that way, it's similar to the book of Zechariah or Daniel in the Old Testament. You probably know that there are lots of different ways of interpreting Revelation. There have been lots of ideas throughout church history. Uh, Most of them come down into four big categories. I don't want to spend a lot of time on this, but let me just give you the categories and a little bit of different ways that people have interpreted Revelation. There's the preterist view, and that word is a big word, but it just comes from the Latin word which means past. And the preterist view basically is that the events recorded and prophesied in uh, the book of Revelation are events in past history, almost all of them taking place in the first century leading up to the fall of Jerusalem in 70 A.D. Really, most preterists would say that only chapters 21 and 22 are about the future. Everything else is about the past. It's already happened. The second is called the futurist view. And that is that almost all of the events in the book are about things that are in the future yet to happen. They take place right before Jesus comes back in his second coming. And I would tell you that uh, by and large, most evangelicals fall into that second category and believe that almost all of what Revelation is speaking about is the events immediately before Christ comes back again. The third is called the historical view, and that basically means that uh, Revelation describes actual historical events that took place from the first coming until at least the Reformation, maybe to the second coming. But it's a timeline, it's, it's, a, it's a linear timeline of the events of history that took place uh, between when Christ came the first time and the time of the Reformation. The fourth fourth view is called the idealist view. And that basically means that it's not a a, a recounting of a linear history, but revelation is about, in general, the tribulation that God's people deal with. They deal with it all the time. They dealt with it in the first century, the fifth century, the 15th century, and we deal with it today. And until the Lord comes back, we will deal with it again. And this book is about how we are to live in the midst of all of this difficulty in the Christian life. So what's my approach? 
Uh, I like to put myself in a fifth category. It's a category that some refer to as kind of the eclectic approach. I would say I'm mostly in the idealist category, but I do think there are bits of the preterist and futurist and maybe just a little bit of the historical view thrown in there. There are seven snapshots that we get in the book of Revelation about all of the history between the first and second coming, all from different points of view. The more I've studied this book, the more I'm convinced of how important and needed this book is for us. So why? Well, let's look and see what John says. The first thing that he says in verses 1 and 2 is that it's important for us to study and to know and to understand and to believe and to put into practice because it's from God and it's for us. That's what he says in verse 1. The revelation of Jesus Christ, which God gave him to show to his servants the things that must soon take place. He made it known by sending his angel to his servant John, who bore witness to the word of God and to the testimony of Jesus Christ, even to all that he saw. God gave this revelation to Jesus. Jesus, in turn, gave it to an angel. And that angel gave visions to his servant, John, who wrote down those visions so that God's people in Asia Minor in the first century could have this letter. This is not John's message. This is not the message of an angel. This is a message that came directly from God through Jesus. And so, it has authority. It's inspired. It is God's word. It is to be trusted. It is to be believed. It is to be followed. The book of Revelation is no less important or authoritative than Genesis or the Psalms. Or the Gospels, or Romans, or any book of the Bible. It is a book from God, but it's also a book for us. That's what John says. It is for God's servants. That's us. If you are a believer in the Lord Jesus Christ, then you are one of God's servants. And this book is not only from God, it is given to us. And notice what he says in verse 3. It is given to be a blessing to us. Blessed is the one who reads aloud the words of this prophecy. And blessed are those who hear and who keep what is written in it for the time is near. It is given to us as God's people so that we might be blessed by reading it, by hearing it, and by keeping and believing and obeying it. The book of Revelation is not for the purpose of just pricking our imaginations. This book is given to us so that we would keep what is written in it, John says. That is, we are to take what is said in this book to heart. It should make us live differently because of the the time that we spend studying it. Our lives should be changed to be more and more and more in conformity with God's will for us. This is not just information for us to read and to try to figure out, but it is a call to action. It is a call for us to endure and persevere and to give glory to God because as John says, the time is near. You also need to know there's not only a blessing, which is a unique thing in all of the books of the Bible. This is one of the only ones that specifically mentions a blessing simply for reading it. But at the end of Revelation, 
John says not only is there a blessing, but there's also the possibility of a curse. The very end in chapter 22, verses 18 and 19, he says, I warn everyone who hears the words of the prophecy of this book. So that's all of us. If anyone adds to them, God will add to him the plagues described in the book. And if anyone takes away from the words of the book of this prophecy, God will take away his share in the tree of life in the holy city, which are described in this book. It's a reminder that God's people, God's servants are given this book as a blessing. But those who would listen to it, who would hear it, and who would either add to it or take away from it, who would choose not to obey it and to not believe it, there is a curse that comes into play. So, first of all, why is it important for us to read and understand and study this book? It's because it comes from God and it is for us. But notice what he says as well. This book is meant for us to understand. Now, where do I get that from? Well, it's several places. Specifically, right at the beginning of verse 1. The revelation of Jesus Christ. The, the word revelation I already mentioned to you is the word apocalypsis, which means unveiling. Uncovering, revealing, disclosure. In other words, what John is telling them, what God is telling God's people is that he is giving something to us that is not meant to be hidden. It's not meant to be confusing or not understood. It's meant to reveal something to us. It is meant for us to understand. It's supposed to help us to know and to understand what? Jesus. The book of Revelation is given to us to help us to know and to understand and to love more deeply our Savior. Uh, John goes on and says in verse 1 that Jesus made it known. It's, it's meant to be known and understood not just by spiritual PhDs and seminary professors, but all of God's servants are meant to understand it. That's why he says in verse 3 that it's intended to be read and heard and kept. How can you read and hear and keep it unless you're understanding it? God intends for us to understand it. Not to be filled with confusion or fear. Two of the commentators that I am going to lean uh, heavily upon during our study of the book of Revelation, Vern Poitras and Greg Beale uh, have both written that Revelation, this is, this is a great way of thinking about it, the book of Revelation is not a puzzle, it's a child's picture book. It's not a puzzle, it's a child's picture book. That's how we're supposed to read it. So often we come to the book of Revelation and we think of it as this puzzle. And I, as I was thinking about this, I was thinking about the little toy uh, shop at the university shops downtown above uh, uh, Chester's restaurant. If you've ever walked by there, right in front of the window, some of, they have these huge puzzles. 5,000 piece puzzles that are in, intricate and complicated. And that's how often we think about Revelation. It's like this massive puzzle with this very difficult picture that we have to try to figure out how do we get all the pieces to fit together just right. And what do all the pieces mean? And we're going to look at some of the details and try to figure out the pieces. But what Poitras and Beale are reminding us is that's not our primary way of thinking about this book. We should think about this book as a child's picture book. 
Think of the contrast between a massive, complicated puzzle and a simple child's picture book. That's how we're meant to read this. Now, let me give you an example of that right here from the text itself. Turn just one more page to Revelations 4 and 5. Now, I'm going to read to you these two chapters. They're not too long. I want you to resist your and my natural inclination to try to figure out what all of the individual pieces mean that are being described here. And instead, I want you to do everything you can to read and listen to what is read to you as a picture book of God speaking to you as one of his children and giving you the picture, this big picture. Okay? Now listen to what he says. After this I looked and behold a door standing open in heaven. And the first voice which I had heard speaking to me like a trumpet said, Come up here and I will show you what must take place after this. At once I was in the spirit and behold a throne stood in heaven and with one seated on the throne. And he who sat there had the appearance of Jasper and Carnelian. And around the throne was a rainbow that had the appearance of an emerald. Around the throne were 24 thrones, and seated on the thrones were 24 elders, clothed in white garments with golden crowns on their heads. From the throne came flashes of lightning and rumblings and peals of thunder. And before the throne were burning seven torches of fire, which are the seven spirits of God. And before the throne there was, as it were, a sea of glass like crystal. And around the throne, on each side of the throne, are four living creatures full of eyes in front and behind. The first living creature like a lion, the second living creature like an ox, the third living creature with the face of a man, and the fourth living creature like an eagle in flight. And the four living creatures, each of them with six wings, are full of eyes all around and within. And day and night they never cease to say, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty, who was and is and is to come. And whenever the living creatures give glory and honor and thanks to Him who is seated on the throne, who lives forever and ever, the twenty-four elders fall down before Him who is seated on the throne and worship Him who lives forever and ever. They cast their crowns before the throne, saying, Worthy are you, our Lord and God, to receive glory and honor and power, for you created all things, and by your will they existed and were created. Then I saw in the right hand of him who was seated on the throne a scroll written within and on the back, sealed with seven seals. And I saw a mighty angel proclaiming with a loud voice, Who is worthy to open the scroll and break its seals? And no one in heaven or earth or under the earth was able to open the scroll or to look into it. And I began to weep loudly because no one was found worthy to open the scroll or to look into it. And one of the elders said to me, weep no more. Behold, the lion of the tribe of Judah, the root of David, has conquered so that he can open the scroll and its seven seals. And between the throne and the four living creatures and among the elders, I saw a lamb standing as though it had been slain with seven horns and with seven eyes, which are the seven spirits of God sent out into all the earth. And he went and took the scroll from the right hand of him who was seated on the throne. And when he had taken the scroll, 
The four living creatures and the twenty-four elders fell down before the Lamb, each holding a harp and golden bowls full of incense, which are the prayers of the saints. And they sang a new song, saying, Worthy are you to take the scroll and to open its seals. For you were slain, and by your blood you ransomed people for God, from every tribe and language and people and nation. And you have made them a kingdom and priests to our God, and they shall reign on the earth. Then I looked and I heard around the throne and the living creatures and the elders, the voice of many angels numbering myriads of myriads and thousands of thousands saying with a loud voice, worthy is the lamb who was slain to receive power and wealth and wisdom and might and honor and glory and blessing. And I heard every creature in heaven and on earth and under the earth and in the sea and all that is in them saying to him who sits on the throne and to the lamb be blessing and honor and glory might forever and ever. And the four living creatures said, Amen. And the elders fell down and worshiped. I know it's so tempting to try to figure out what do the 24 elders represent and the, the seven spirits of God that went out into the, this place and that place and, and the, the bowls of incense and all of the things that are, that are being described here. It's our tendency, it, it's natural, it's, a, it's even appropriate to some degree to try to parse it all out, to put all the puzzle pieces on the table and try to figure out how they go together. But we're meant to read this as a simple child. Like a picture book. Do you see the main point of what John is getting at here in these two chapters? The glory and the power of God and the Lamb. This book is meant for us to understand. As we dig into the details and specifics, we can't forget We're supposed to understand it. It's meant for us to be understood. It's meant to encourage us and to fill us with hope and to to fill us with joy. It's meant to move us to give God glory and honor and worship. It should be joy for us to read this book. One commentator said, thinking about reading it as a, a child reads a picture book, cheer for Jesus and the saints. Hate and detest the beast and his servants. Rejoice in the sovereign power of God and praise the Lamb. Use this book in moments of persecution and difficulties and troubles and discouragement. Be filled with hope and joy and peace. It's meant to be understood. Lastly, John says it's important because the whole book is about Jesus. Go back again to what he said in verse chapter 1, verse 1. It's the revelation of Jesus Christ. Now, grammatically speaking, that could mean in the Greek that this is a revelation from Jesus. Or it could also mean it's a revelation about Jesus. Now, we know from what he goes on to say in verse 1 that John's primary point is that this is a revelation that is from Jesus. It comes from Jesus. That's his point there in verse 1. In verse 2. But as we look at the context of this entire book, we know that it not only comes from Jesus, but this entire book is about Jesus. It is an unveiling, an uncovering, a revealing about the person and the work of Jesus Christ. The reason why we will be blessed by reading and hearing and keeping revelation is that by doing that, through the work of the Holy Spirit, we will know and love our Savior better. We'll read it and understand 
as a testimony, a witness of Jesus Christ, as John says at the end of verse 2. There have been many attempts to try to give a summary statement of this entire book. A pretty good one comes from Vern Poitras. He says, God rules history and he will bring it to consummation in Jesus Christ. That's a pretty good summary of, of this entire book. My simplification of that, God is in control of history and he wins through Jesus. This book fills us with incredible hope and strength. As we look out and we see the reality of a battle between good and evil going on all around us, we see evil, we see injustice, we see unrighteousness all around when we struggle with our sin that is within us and we can't seem to overcome it, when we are filled with doubts and discouragements and even depression, we know how the story ends. We know the sovereignty and the omnipotence and the power of God. We know that good and evil are not equal opportunity battling each other. We know that God is in control of history and that He wins through Jesus. We may see, we may experience great evil and injustice in this world. We may feel overwhelmed with our own sin. We may feel discouraged with a lack of progress and maturity in the Christian faith. But the book of Revelation is given to us to tell us how the story ends. And the ending is glorious and certain. It helps us to live as we are supposed to live. We recognize that we live in the days when these things, as John says, must soon take place. That when the time is near, he says in verse 3. Other places in the Bible, it speaks about living in the last days. That's us. From the time of Jesus' death and resurrection and ascension, we are now in the last days. John is giving us this to tell us how we are to live. Believing and trusting what we read in this book about who Jesus is and what he came to do and the blessings that we have by putting our faith in him. So at the end of the day, Revelation may not be so much about the events of the future, but how we're supposed to be living as God's people today. God is in control of history and he wins through Jesus so as we progress our way through this incredible book, let's not neglect it. Let's not have an unhealthy obsession over it or be afraid of it. Let's approach it humbly, but expectantly and eagerly and even joyfully that we might be filled with hope and strength and be moved to give God the glory that he so deserves. Let's pray together. Our Father in heaven, we come before you and we, we do confess that uh, so often we, we approach this book with simply trying to ignore it, not pay attention to it, or maybe have an unhealthy obsession over it. I pray, Father, that you would be at work through our time together in, in these pages and the months to come. We pray for your spirit to be powerfully at work, even as your spirit was at work guiding and directing an angel to give these visions to John so long ago and for John to write them down so that we have them in front of us, even today. 
That same Spirit, Father, we would pray that you would fill us not only with a knowledge of this book, but that you would fill us with a knowledge that leads to joy and hope and a greater love and obedience that we might truly glorify and enjoy you. Help that, help that to be the case, not only as we finish this book, but even as we go through it and even this week. We pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. The Apostle Paul wrote a letter to the church in Corinth. And uh, one of those letters, two of those letters are recorded in the Bible. One of those letters is 1 Corinthians. And there in 1 Corinthians, Paul gave uh, that church in the first century some instructions about the Lord's Supper that we seek to apply into our own lives and context here at Trinity. This is what uh, Paul says. I received from the Lord what I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus on the night when he was betrayed took bread. And when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, also he took the cup after supper, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. That's important for us to understand. As we come to the Lord's Supper at the conclusion of our service each week, we come to eat the bread and drink the cup and we are proclaiming the Lord's death. His body, His blood given for us as He died on the cross. We are proclaiming, we are declaring the death of the Lord Jesus Christ every Sunday as we come to this table. But I think we're also proclaiming something else as we come to this table each week. Because it's not just the death of Jesus that we remember. We also remember that he rose from the grave. That he ascended to the right hand of the Father and is interceding for us at this very moment. So we are proclaiming not only the death of Jesus Christ, but we're proclaiming that we know the end of the story. And that that story is glorious and it is certain. That those who rest and trust in Christ win through God, through the Lord Jesus Christ. It's meant to be a great encouragement to us. It's meant to proclaim the one true story of all. That God is in control of history and that He wins through Jesus. That's our proclamation. That's our declaration. Not only that Jesus came and died, gave Himself for us to forgive us of our sins, but also that He rose again from the grave and that the end is sure and certain. Because that's what we're proclaiming as we come to this table. It's not just us collectively as a church that's making that proclamation or that uh, claim. But it's those individually that take the Lord's Supper that are also making that proclamation. So our own denomination has said that those who come to the table who eat and drink should be those who have faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. That they're actually proclaiming, not just at the Lord's Supper, but in their profession of faith. That they believe in the Lord Jesus Christ and they are trusting in Him alone for their salvation. So if that's you here this morning, you've made that declaration, that proclamation publicly in a church that believes and teaches God's word is true. The gospel by grace alone, through faith in Christ alone. Then we would invite you uh, to eat and to drink and to remember, but also to be strengthened as we come in faith as the Holy Spirit takes what we're doing and fills us with an ever-increasing faith that we might go out and truly believe and love and serve him this week ahead so let's pause for a moment and let's thank him for giving us this table
Our Heavenly Father, we do thank you for the Lord's Supper. We thank you for this means of grace that it points us to our Savior. Indeed, it points us to his life of perfect love and obedience. It points us to his death on the cross, sacrificially paying for our sins and attaining a righteousness for us. But we also know, Father, that it points us to the conclusion of the story. What Revelation tells us so well. That you are in control of history and that you win through Jesus Christ. So I pray, Father, for each and every one of us that partake of this this morning. That you would fill us with all hope and joy. And that you would strengthen us as we go out. That we might love you and serve you and obey you this week ahead. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.